Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Good morning, Balcony. Good morning, Coldwater. Uh, good to be together in the house of the Lord. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it up to Acts 21, verse 27. That's on page 931 in the church Bibles there. We're going to jump back into our journey through uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And um, I realized as I was actually preparing for my Thanksgiving sermon, because I went back and I couldn't recall whether I had preached a Thanksgiving, because we don't always do a Thanksgiving-specific message. But I went back and uh, I looked up Thanksgiving from last year, and I saw that little line as well. We're going to take a break from our Acts series. So I realized, it reminded me, we've actually been in this series in Acts since last September. So just a little over a year. Now we took a break for Christmas and Easter and a little bit of a, a break over the summer as well. But we've been taking a long, slow walk through the Acts of the Apostles. And we've been doing that um, because, of course, these are all foundational stories. These are all template stories. I mean, these, these stories really happened, but they've also been preserved because it, it, they show us also, in many cases, what should happen. They, they give us pictures uh, that, that we can refer to when we get confused uh, or lost. And, uh, and, and so we've been looking at all these stories. We've been talking about how it feels like a new world. It feels like we need to think in, in old, new ways about being the church. And, and it's interesting because the book of Acts feels way more relevant to us today, I would argue, than it felt five years ago. The, the world has changed a lot in the last five years. And our position in the culture has changed a lot in the last, I would say, five to ten years uh, by and large, the church in North America has, over that, that time period, five to ten years, has gone from occupying a position of privilege near the center to a position of indifference at the margin. And, and that's a totally different posture. It changes the angle for, for all the ways that, that we address the culture, changes the way we think. And so I, we've been finding these stories very, very, very helpful. And uh, today we're looking at what I believe is the longest continuous story uh, that we've covered in a single sermon this far. So I hope you, hope you brought a snack. I hope you're ready to go. Uh, this, is, this is a long one. Uh, and, and it's been preserved, I think, because it, it represents a very critical hinge in the narrative. This is a story about division, persecution, and providence. All topics that I I know that we're reacquainting ourselves with and will be reacquainting ourselves with even more over the coming years and decades. So hopefully that gave you enough time, that little introduction there, to locate the text in your Bible. I'll start reading at verse 27 of chapter 21, and I'll carry on all the way through to verse 30 of chapter 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. 
And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? He said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that it is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, take a deep breath. Everybody get your water bottle out. Woo! Actually, just me get your water bottle out. You didn't, you didn't read that at all, did you? I read that. Hopefully you followed along. Very long passage to read. And that in itself is very interesting. As we've talked about before, Luke is generally very selective as an author. You had to be, right? Scrolls were expensive. Ink was expensive. Uh, you didn't add extraneous details. You didn't repeat things you didn't need to repeat, right? You had to tell the story in a certain way. We know that, for example, because Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us that actually three times he was beaten with rods, which was the Roman civil punishment, three times. But Luke actually only tells us about one of those occasions uh, because once you've heard about it happening in Philippi, you don't need to hear it happening again in other places. And, and, and so from that, and we could heap up examples of that, we know that Paul had far more adventures and further trials than Luke has included here because editorial decisions have been made. All right, fair enough. But the point is, they have not been made here. Here we're getting the director's cut, you might say. We're getting a very full, very detailed narrative that functions as a sort of hinge in the story. This is the story that basically ends Paul's missionary travels. Up until this point, the story has been about the movement of the gospel from town to town, and then, and then you know, Paul starts taking it wider and wider, and you've got one missionary journey and two missionary journeys, and three missionary journeys, and we're expecting four and five and six, but we don't get that. This is the story that changes Paul's trajectory. He goes from being a traveling missionary to a person sitting in a cell awaiting trial. Here Paul begins his journey through the civil court system that will terminate with him awaiting an audience before Caesar in the city of Rome. And so Luke gives us the uncut version of this very important story. And I think we can identify three very important themes that he means for us to see. 
First of all, in this story, we see why the Jewish people so resented the early Christian movement. And that was a very important detail. That was a very important issue for the church in the first several generations. This was one of the main apologetic issues, right? Every culture asks of Christianity different questions. For example, in our day and age, because we are a peaceful, prosperous, comfortable people, one of the most common questions that non-Christians will ask us is, if God is so good, why do so many bad things happen in the world? First century Romans weren't, weren't asking that question. But you know what question they were asking? And they asked it all the time for about 300 years. They asked the question, what is it about Christianity that caused it to be rejected by the very people from which it sprang? Why, if, if Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, why did most of them not embrace him when he came? That was the question they were asking. They're, they're saying, listen, if, if you want us, us Romans, to adopt this religion, explain to us why the Jews didn't. And, and so, you know, we can see the Apostle Paul addressing this at length in his letter to the Romans. Remember that? He's got, he's got a big section right in the middle of his gospel addressing this issue. Christian apologists will come back to this again and again and again over the next several centuries. So here we see Luke beginning to address that issue, beginning to provide an answer. Look again at Luke or at Acts 22, verses 21 to 22. The Apostle Paul's mid-testimony here. And he says, he, God, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So we don't even know what kind of sermon Paul intended to preach here. He never got the chance. He never made it out of his introduction. As soon as he said that he'd been given a commission to take the gospel to the nations, the crowd immediately lost its mind. Away with this fellow. He should not be allowed to live. Of course, you know, 2,000 years later, we're wondering, what in the world's going on here? Right? You'd, you'd think the Jews would be happy to get rid of Paul. Right? Like, oh, you, you want to go far away to the Gentiles? Good, we'll book your ticket. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. But that's not how they reacted. They lost their minds when they heard that. So why is that? Well, if you're a Bible reader, then you know that the Jewish people never did embrace their calling to be a light to the nations. In the Old Testament, the plan was for Israel to be among the nations for the nations. God actually said that to them as he constituted them into a nation at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. He said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, notice there, he doesn't say you will be a kingdom with priests. He says you'll be a kingdom of priests. The whole nation was supposed to fulfill this function. They were, they were to be collectively a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what, what do priests do? Priests speak to people on behalf of God and to God on behalf of people. That was the commission. They were supposed to shine. That is to say they were to be a holy nation. They were supposed to be different than the nation. They were supposed to provide an alternative vision of community. And they were supposed to speak 
But they didn't want to do any of that. They didn't want to work for God. They wanted God to work for them. They wanted God to be their secret weapon against the nations. And we see that time and time again in the Old Testament. Think of the time, for example, uh, back in the days of Eli. Do you remember Eli? Eli uh, is usually held up as an example of a good leader who is just too weak to be useful. He was a good man, but his sons were out of control. Do you remember that? And, and, and he came at the end of the era of the judges. And the era of the judges is like watching a slinky go down a set of stairs, right? Like it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And does anybody remember the last verse in the book of Judges? There was no king in those days. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was absolute anarchy. And Eli is the transitional character. And his sons were a mess. And the temple had become a completely apostate place, the the shrine at Shiloh. It was a place where the worshipers were robbed and where the women were sexually assaulted. It was an absolute mess. Things were so bad that when Eli saw a woman in the temple praying, he assumed she was drunk. That's what you do when you haven't seen anyone pray in a really long time, right? It was a mess. But then the Philistines uh, started becoming a threat, and and the, the Philistines marched against Israel. And so what did Israel do? They went out to meet them, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that? They thought that they had trapped the God of the universe in a box. They thought that they could wield God as a weapon. And of course, they found out the hard way that that's not how it works. God abandoned the Israelites to the Philistines, and there was a terrible slaughter. We skim right over the numbers in these stories. 30,000 Israelites died in that conflict. It was the worst tragedy in the Old Testament prior to the exile in Babylon. Israel has never had the right to assume upon the favor and protection of God merely on the basis of some kind of nominal relationship. Think how many stories there are in the Old Testament that are making that point. Right? If God was a secret weapon that they could wield against their enemy, if God was a cave troll, basically, right, that they could pull out on a chain so as to harass their enemies, if if that's who God was to them, then why did they lose to the Philistines? Why did they lose to the Assyrians? Why did they lose to the Babylonians? Why did they lose to Rome? Because that's not how it works. And that's not who God is. God is not a magic power that you can keep locked away in a secret box. God is not a dog on the end of your covenant chain. The entire storyline of the Old Testament seems to be saying that Israel has misunderstood God. They have misunderstood the nature of their relationship with God. They have misunderstood their own calling and mission as the people of God. They had no interest in being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so here is Paul in Jerusalem saying, what you have dropped, we the people of Jesus are picking up. By the grace of God, we are now a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And by the spirit of God, we will make disciples for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. 
And of course, the Jewish people were not interested in hearing that, at least not the Jews in Jerusalem on that day. They liked being the chosen people. And they didn't want to hear that the covenant community was being reconstituted such that Jews and Gentiles were going to sit side by side as equals. They understood the implications of the gospel Paul was preaching. They understood that they could still be in, but that in the new system they would lose their special status. Remember, this riot was started by Jews from Asia, the capital city of which is Ephesus, a place where Paul preached the gospel for two years. And they had heard this before. They had heard the apostle Paul say, for through him we both, we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, for through Christ we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, addressing Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2, 18 to 20. So they had heard the apostle Paul inviting the Gentiles in on an equal footing with them through the person and work of Christ, and they didn't want to hear that. Now listen, I understand that right now it's tricky for us to read stories in the Bible about Israel because it's like we've got two screens open in our brain. We're like, where do I store this information? Is this, are you, are, Pastor, are you commenting right now on the news coming out of Israel? Are you talking about Israel today, or are you talking about Israel in the first century? You know, I would say put up your hand if you're thinking that, but you, all our hands would go up at the same time. So let, let me be very clear. I'm, I'm not making application to, to Israel today. We need to have that conversation, and, and we will at some point. Right now, I'm actually going back to the point in the river where there's a fork in the river, where these rivers split, and where Judaism says, you, you go your way, we're going our way. I'm going back to that moment. Luke is taking us back to that moment, and he's telling us why it happened. It happened because the Jewish people looked down, and they clearly understood what Paul was saying. They, they understood that, that what Christianity was saying is that the work of God in the world was about to get a lot wider. It had been as wide as one nation for a very long time, but now it's going to be as wide as every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, and they did not want to hear that. And so they cut Paul's sermon off, and they would have cut Paul's head off if not for the intervention of the Roman Tribune, which takes us to the second important theme I want you to see in the story. Luke has preserved this story in all of its voluminous detail, in part at least because it so aptly illustrates the correct use of the civil law in the course of Christian life and mission. Now, we caught a glimpse of this back in Acts 16 when the Apostle Paul was, as I mentioned, wrongly imprisoned and illegally beaten without a proper trial. As a Roman citizen, that should not have happened to him. And so when it was all over and the riot had, had you know, quieted down and they were just like, all right, go quietly out of town, Paul refused to go. He demanded a full review of the proceedings because he wanted it to be known throughout the city that what the magistrates had done was illegal. And they acknowledged that. They apologized for that. And that actually created some operating space for the church there in that city. So it was very wise of the Apostle Paul. And we see him doing much the same thing here. That is important for us to see. 
Christians need to understand that it is not wrong to make wise and appropriate use of the law. It's not wrong to say to the person arresting you, is it lawful for you to do what you are doing? It's not wrong to say to a court that has levied a significant fine against you or against your church, is this fine proportionate to the punishment or is there an aspect of animus and malice in your decision? It's not wrong for you to ask the courts to review the legality of protocols that were enforced during a national emergency. It is not wrong for you to petition the government to review the recent legislation, placing limits on what pastors and parents can say to a child who comes to them for counsel. It's not wrong for you to ask the courts to review your recent firing for refusing to wear the T-shirt or for refusing to help build the company float. Luke wants us to know that while we must show all proper honor and respect, we can ask questions and we can take shelter behind the shield of the law. There is nothing wrong with keeping the wedge of the law underneath the door that the devil is trying to slam in our faces. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen, as Christians, we want to obey God. We also want to be effective in our mission. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to assume that if you're a follower of Christ and if you're a Bible reader, you're not interested in doing the right thing the wrong way, right? Like we're not going to play games. Like that's, meekness basically means accepting defeat if you can't win the right way. And, and that's just part of the Christian culture. We understand that sometimes we win by losing, Ergo, cross, empty tomb, right? Like we've been there before. And, and so as Christians right now, we want to know. We need to know. What are we allowed to do? And what are we not allowed to do? What methods are fair? And what methods are foul? We didn't have to think about any of that in previous generations in this country. But we need to think about it now. And so we're thankful that Luke has preserved this story because it shows the Apostle Paul threading this needle so precisely. And finally, and I think very obviously, as we consider the end of the story, it would seem that Luke has preserved this narrative because it reminds us that in the providence of God, persecution very often serves to extend the reach and impact of the gospel. Look at verse 30 again there. Verse 30, right at the end of the story, Acts 22, verse 30. says this, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. So this would be the tribune. He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council. So that's the Jewish senate. All the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. Think about that for just a moment. The Apostle Paul came to Jerusalem with a very different agenda. If you're a Bible reader, you know that actually the main reason that Paul was going to Jerusalem at this time was to deliver what scholars often refer to as the Jerusalem offering. You will recall that Paul was collecting relief funds from all the Greek churches, the churches in Achaia and Macedonia, 
and he was going to hand them off to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was taking the lead in the benevolence ministry for the church. And Paul's hope was that this very generous gift would actually strengthen the bonds of unity between Jew and Gentile in the church. It's a very noble ambition. He wasn't planning on stirring up a riot. He wasn't thinking about preaching the gospel before the Jewish Senate. And he would have had no idea whatsoever that he was about to enter the last chapter of his life, in which he would write a significant portion of the New Testament and provide a defense of Christianity before governors, kings, and eventually the emperor of Rome. All that because an angry mob in Jerusalem lost its mind. What the enemy means for evil, our God turns to the good. Can you say amen to that? I hope you can, because unless I'm misreading the signs, we're about to put that principle to the test in this country over the coming years and decades. So we need to believe this. We need to believe that just like we're seeing in the story, sometimes things can get harder and better simultaneously. Things definitely got way harder for the Apostle Paul, starting from this point in the story. From this point on in the story, he lived his entire life under the shadow of the executioner's sword. From this point on in the story, his time was not his own. He was not a free man. He spent months sitting in tiny cells waiting for this interview or this audience with this governor or that. We actually visited Caesarea in, uh, in 2011, and we toured the, the sort of governor's residence there. And of course, it's not still perfectly constructed. You're mostly looking at foundations and whatnot. But they took us to the place which they believe was the, uh, the prison for those who are awaiting an audience before uh, the court of the governor. It's very small, not much bigger than our drum kit uh, cage. And uh, it tells us right in, in the Acts of the Apostles that the Apostles, Paul, Apostle Paul spent two years in there waiting for the completion of his trial. Can you imagine that? And that's astonishing. Can you imagine how hard that would have been? I mean, most of us lost our minds because we were asked to hang out in our basement more or less for two years, right? And we, could, and we could go out walking in the woods, and then there were little breaks when we could go out and have dinner or go to a movie as long as we were socially distanced, right? But Paul didn't have any of that for two years. And, and then for a couple of more years in Rome, all he could do was pray for the churches, speak with those who visited him, and write letters. <laughs> and in the providence of God, those hard years changed the world. Think of all the times when you've been reading your Bible, reading your New Testament, and you stumble across kind of a throwaway little verse where Paul happens to mention that, that he wrote this from prison. Just yesterday, if you're an RMM Bible reader uh, using the RMM plan, just yesterday in our plan, we were reading Colossians 4. Colossians 4.3 says this. Paul's, Paul's writing here. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And we just, we skip right by that, don't we? But think about this. Think if you had to pull out of your New Testament every letter that Paul wrote from prison. Every letter that mentions something like that. You know, I'm in, except for these chains, blah, 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 while I was in prison. If, you, if every one of those references, you had to pull the whole book out, you understand, your New Testament would be a lot thinner. That's what I mean by harder and better. It was way harder for Paul 
but boy, was it better for us. Do you have a category for that? Harder for you personally, but better for us collectively. Christian teachers out there, do you have a category for that? Are you ready and willing to use your unjust firing and subsequent lawsuit as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the lords and leaders of this land? Christian doctors, do you have a category for that? Are you ready and willing to use your impending court proceedings to speak winsomely and courageously in defense of the dignity and value of every human life? Because that's coming. It's coming for all of us. Teachers, doctors, and pastors first, and then parents, grandparents, and employees after that. We all need to prepare ourselves for the experience of persecution with the accompanying expectation that it will be used by God to extend and deepen the impact of the gospel in this country. Now, that's not scaremongering. That's Bible reading. Jesus told us to think in these categories. He said, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a pretty bracing forecast, isn't it? Some of you are going to be arrested. But the Holy Spirit is going to give you the word so that you can properly take advantage of that opportunity when it comes. Many of you are going to be hated and even betrayed by family members. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child. Children are going to rise up against their parents. I'm not sure that I could have imagined that 20 years ago, but I'll tell you what, I have absolutely no trouble imagining it now. It's going to get harder, friends. But it is also going to get better. The opportunities are going to be bigger, and the hearts of our friends, neighbors, and loved ones are going to be softer as they see how we suffer and as their culture continues to decline and disintegrate all around them. Because I'll tell you something, the disintegration of this culture as it departs from its Christian foundation will actually fall as fertilizer on the hearts of our friends and neighbors, making them far more receptive in the coming decades to the word of the gospel that we sow. And so there is absolutely no reason to despair and no reason for us to be anxious. When the opportunity comes, words will be given to you in that hour. When you are hated and betrayed by those you love, the Lord will be present with you through his spirit. When it seems like the devil is getting the upper hand, just you wait and see how the Lord will work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the promises of your word. How we thank you for this map. This 
is history, Lord, but it's also a map for the present and encouragement for the future. Lord, would you be with us? Would you fulfill all these promises? Would you give us the words we need when we are in that kind of opportunity? Would you be present with us when we're suffering loss and betrayal? And oh God, would you, in your providence, turn every wicked scheme and snare of the enemy back on his head? Lord, would, would you take every hardship, would you, would you take seemingly every defeat and turn it into a resurrection victory? We ask in the name of the one who was crucified, dead, and buried, and who on the third day rose again to life. Amen.